Before we dive into this text, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I ask that we would come um, to it not like any other book, not like any other words, no matter how great they are, but what this truly is, which is your living and active word, there is nothing like it. And so stir in our souls an awareness of how famished they are apart from hearing from you. Challenge us, encourage us. Your word can, can mend the brokenhearted. It can revive the, the faint. It can unburden the weary. It can relax the anxious. It can be hope-filled for the downcast. And no matter how we came in, what every single person in this room needs most, what we all need most is to leave this place more impressed with Jesus. So would you make him loud in our songs, in our prayers, in communion, in our conversations, and I pray that you would make him loud in this text and in this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. For those that have read the, the book of Job um, in the Bible, it can be a, a perplexing, difficult book to access. It's a book of, of really profound suffering and suffering that happens to someone who's, who's said to be, to be upright and righteous, who turns away from evil, who fears the Lord. All of these bad things happening, all of these tragedies happening to someone who seems to be pretty good. In the span of two chapters, the span of one day, Job loses just about everything that's precious to him. He loses his, his property, his livelihood, whether that's through the death of his animals, people uh, stealing them and carrying them off. He, he loses his children, all of his children. They've gathered together to, to have a party, and a whirlwind comes out of nowhere and levels the house, and all of his kids are gone. He loses his health. Any of you that have had or do have chronic pain can probably relate to what it was like for Job. He, he was covered in sores from his head to his feet. It's miserable. And then chapter two ends with him, in effect, losing the support and, and strength of his, his wife, who, who comes to him with these really unhelpful words in that moment, looks at him in his misery and his sickness and his sadness and says, just get it over with. Just curse God and die. Then for the next 38 chapters, he is berated and belittled and misunderstood. Accusations flinging from his closest friends. Most of us have a hard time relating to that. Even those of us who have gone through or, or who are going through challenging situations, just the sheer magnitude of the suffering and all that Job lost, it's just hard to access. It's hard to, how, how do our experiences relate to Job's experience? And, and I had a hard time accessing until I came across a line from, from a book. And I think the book is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And the author's Tim Keller. I think it's from that. I'm not positive, And I'm probably going to misquote the line, but it's been super helpful for me. So here you go. The story of Job it's everyone's story. It just takes most of us a lifetime to lose what Job lost in a day. You think about it. At some point, 
your health will begin to fade. At some point, you will have to say goodbye to your friends or your friends will have to say goodbye to you. At some point, every friendship, every relationship, every career will expire. The nicest homes will crumble. The best cars will rust. I love to run. At some point, I won't be able to run. Hopefully, I'll walk. But at some point, that'll probably be hard. The story of Job is everyone's story because at some point, we're going to lose it all. Your sight, your hearing. This is Cherry. Welcome to Redeemer if you're visiting. Um, <laughs> I write for Hallmark. Um, hang in there. We're going to go somewhere with this. Understanding that Job's story is our story is the first step in knowing how to live whatever story we walk well. No matter what direction it goes, Christianity, among many things, shows us how to live well in this world full of both wonder and heartache. Christianity, among many things, shows us how to live well in this world that is full of wonder, but also full of heartache. I love how Tim Keller does say it in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Today's psalm is going to show us how to do that. Psalm 126, it's going to provide two must-haves for living well in a world that sometimes goes wrong. The first half of the psalm is this, the Lord has done great things. But the second thing you have to have is this, the Lord will do even greater things. Often we find ourselves between those two statements. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Psalm 126, this is God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Feel free to grab a seat. This text begins with this reference to, to it, was like, it was like a dream. What we got to experience, this, 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 this goodness, this restoration, it was like a dream. It was so good. It's like it came out of, of, of nowhere. Something about my wife when we got pregnant with our, our first child, and, and you know, she, she had the, the pregnancy test and you know, calls me into the bathroom to see it sitting on the counter, and you look down at the pregnancy test, and this is when having two pink lines on a test was a good thing. Pregnancy test, you know, COVID has ruined that, or someone needs to redesign the test. But you see, you, you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, praise God, we're pregnant. I can't believe we're pregnant. I was in seminary at the time. We're living in Mary Student Housing. We don't have a ton of money, so to celebrate, we went to Quiznos. <laughs> Toasted subs. Katie got buffalo chicken. True story. The joy of this passage, though, is different than that joy. 
We didn't struggle like so many have struggled to get pregnant. I know the story of, of infertility is so real for so many. That monthly disappointment. All the good advice that you keep trying to cling to. to, to all the unanswered prayers. All the appointments with, with doctors and injections to try to get the body to do what the body needs to do to be able to, to conceive a, a human. You know, many people that have struggled with this, I think of some dear friends that went through all of these procedures and all these processes and years of just wrestling through, God, what is going on? And I remember getting the call. After years, Rob, we're pregnant. Thanks be to God. That's the joy of this text. It's the joy that comes out of the sorrow, the gifts that come out of the losses and the hurts. So they're saying that when, when you restored, when you, when you worked, God, oh, the Lord has done great things. If you look at the flow of this text, it starts with this when, when the Lord did this. And then verse two, then our mouths were filled with laughter. When God shows up, we sing. When God shows up, we rejoice robustly. We remember what he's done, but, but, but when we can, when we can sing, we sing because we can't always sing. When we re can rejoice, we rejoice because we can't always rejoice. Thought about... Um, Story happened a number of years ago. Our, our college students, our young adults, they were on mission to Western and other young adults in our community, and they'd get together and do all the stuff college students do, throwing parties, having fun, inviting people around, lots of barbecues, lots of basketball, lots of all, lots of just hanging out and trying to put Jesus at the center of it. And through that process, you invite people that are far from him in, build relationships. I think of one young lady who didn't grow up around Christianity at all, had no reference points for it, didn't know how good God is in Christ, didn't know his grace given through Jesus, didn't know all of this. It just had like some vague reference to us, just a bunch of rule-oriented people. And anyway, she builds this friendship, builds this relationship. She comes in, she starts to hear the gospel, and she comes to faith. She becomes a Christian through this, these friendships. And it was so cool, because one of the young ladies that was discipling her and ministering to her said, hey, this is like, you just became a Christian. This is like your birthday. And then this person became a Christian and said, well, then we got to throw a party. So they do, they, they throw a party, they get like a giant sheet cape, and they put a bunch of candles in it, and I think they even sang happy birthday. When you can rejoice, you rejoice robustly. When God moves, you sing. That's the flow of this text, when and then. But then it keeps going in verse two, and you see this flow, when God did this, then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy, and then listen to this little flip. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. This invitation to rejoice when you can isn't just about you, to remember back when God moved and, and being excited about that isn't about you, it's also for the nations. They get a look in on the God that you know, but they don't yet know. They say, oh, what, what did he do? Tell me about it. Think about a family in our church. I've shared this story many times. Um, who was pregnant, and they're 20 weeks in, and I get a text. The news is really bad. There's zero chance this baby survives. 
jump on the phone and we're talking and it's just like, Rob, I know that God can do something. I know he can, but it's hard for me to even pray that. And, and I said, well, that's why God gave you a church. We'll pray for you. And so we just started praying. People started praying. 20 weeks later, that baby was born healthy, so healthy. And this is a part of the story that I don't think I've shared. Her middle name is Grace. And I love that middle name because her entire life will be a testimony to the reality that the Lord does great things. Every time I see her, every time I see a pig, I just think, oh, God moves. The Lord, he does great things. That's how this psalm starts. Verses one through three, you remember the past, restoring. We rejoice when we can rejoice. We regularly testify to God's goodness. And I think the reason it does this is where the psalm goes. Because oftentimes the good times, they don't last. And the wonder and the brokenheartedness of this world, we find ourselves in that collision. One of the things you might ask with a psalm like this is, what sort of music would you set to it? Psalms were songs, actually. They were sung prayers that God's people would use. And on first reading, it feels like, oh, this is probably a song in a major key. This, is, this would be upbeat. I think verse 4 shows us this is actually more of a lament. It's more of a key for the minor times and the minor key of life. This is a sort of how do I have joy and sorrow psalm. This is a things don't look real good right now sort of psalm. This is a sort of like here's how to live well in a world that's both beautiful and broken. And we see that answer begin to play out here in verse 4. The Lord has done great things, but what we read right now is restoring. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Right now, things aren't great. That's what the psalmist is saying. Right now, they're not even good. Right now, they're actually kind of bad. It's like the, the desert. It's dry, and it's hard, and it's difficult. So what we're going to do as we go into this, we'll look at three practical applications for trying to cultivate joy in seasons that are challenging, in seasons of, of loss. And the first one we see it here in verse 4 is to pray. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, restore to us, God. It's a desert. It's dry. It's difficult. I don't see it changing. I don't see life around me. Would you do something? Would you act? Now, the imagery here is really interesting. The, the Negev was a really well-known, very dry place. It was a desert outside of Jerusalem that was pretty expansive. Everyone in this time would have, would have known and realized in this prayer is, would you, would you come like streams in the negative? Because there would be these times, these rare occasions where rain would come and it would, even the littlest amount of rain would come up into the hilltops. And what would happen is as the rain came down, it would, it would begin to channel down the sides of the hills and it would go into these, it would begin to collect in these old dry riverbeds. And as it began to do that, they would begin to fill up. And what would happen, if you've ever seen a, a, a picture of these dry riverbeds, when, when water comes into them, all of a sudden what looked like lifeless, all of a sudden life is springing forth. You have these aquamarine pools and you have these lush green grasses all around and you have this kaleidoscope of flowers that was lying dormant and all it needed was for God to bring a little bit of rain and as it comes in, life happens. And that's what the psalmist is praying for. Perhaps you are in a desert right now, and it's hard, and it's difficult. Pray. The Lord has done great things before. Ask him to again. I know that feels 
depending on your background and what you've been, you might be like, I've been praying. We keep praying. Maybe you feel like I could do more. Well, we'll look at some more we can do in this psalm, but pray. I love um, old hymns. I, love, I think old hymns are the best. Amen? Like three of you said yes. So it's like last service, I think I actually had two. So I said, that's fine. We're going to start doing K-pop worship songs as a church. <laughs> so if you don't know this, is Korean pop music. So um, I do. I love, I love old hymns because I, I love how they cut through some of our um, objections. And it just gives us clarity and simplicity and beauty, and they strengthen me. And I love the stories that most of them were written out of. Think about this one story from Joseph Scriven. Um, on the day before, he's an Irishman from the 1800s, and the day before his wedding, he was riding out to meet his fiancée. They were going to meet in a certain spot, and as she was coming across a, a bridge, her horse bucked her off, and she fell into the water, and she drowned. God used that to obviously break Joseph and also then rebuild him in the Lord, and he began to study his Bible and, and, and to preach and to kind, of, to kind of itinerant preacher around Ireland, and then he ended up in Canada. He fell in love again. Two weeks before his wedding date, his second fiance contracted pneumonia, got terribly sick, and she passed away too. God never brought another fiance. He spent the rest of his life um, single and, and just traveling around and trying to talk about Jesus. And, and, and because of that, he didn't make a lot of money. And he got news that his mom, who was still back in Ireland, was, was gravely ill and she was going to pass. And so since he couldn't go back, he couldn't get to Ireland, he wrote her a poem. And the poem became the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And one of the things I love about these words and I love about these stories is they're not coming from someone that's immune to the heartbreak of this world. They're coming from someone that has gone into it. And, and Christ has proved himself strong enough in those places and, and that we get to borrow that. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry. Everything to God in prayer. The second half of that verse is always immediately convicting and recalibrating for me. How often I carry the concerns of this world instead of put myself in a place of prayer in, this, in the desert. Say, God, would you carry me? And would you carry what I'm carrying? Goes on. Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? And then if I might be permitted to make a modification to what he wrote, it's wonderful. I'm not saying I should change it, but I always change it when I'm singing it. He goes on and says, we should never be discouraged. I always change it to, I don't have to be discouraged. Being sorrowful, being discouraged, being anxious are not sins against the Lord, it's, but, but we're invited. A psalm like this says, but you don't have to stay there. You can bring your hurts and bring your concerns and say, God, you've, you've done great things before. Would you come and do it now? We don't have to be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I promise you this. Life will give you more than you can handle. It will never give you more than what Christ can handle. We pray.
We pray, we wait, we hope, that's verse four. But we also, we plant and we sow, that's verses five and six. We don't stop praying, we keep doing that. But, but, but we also plant something. I think what's planted here is actually an incredibly freeing gift that God gives us. It's actually, here's what we sow. We sow tears. We weep. When things are distressing, we go before the Lord distressed. When things are sorrowful, we come before the Lord sorrowful. I want to invite you to learn to lament, to name your losses. I absolutely love that the joy that's offered in this psalm and biblical joy is not some sort of like faking that you're fine when you're not fine. It's an honesty, a realness to say things are not fine and it hurts. The psalm is an invitation to lament losses. I want you to know weeping is not sub-Christian. We worship a God who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who wept. Scott Sauls, in his book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, says this. He says, the fact that Jesus will come again is our reason to rejoice. The fact that he has not yet done so yet is our reason to lament, weep, wail, and hope. Though full and unmitigated rejoicing will come in the morning, now is also a time for tears. This last week um, was harder for me than most weeks. It began uh, a week ago Friday. I was at the eye doctor, and my wife sent me a text and said, hurry home, the water tank is flooding the garage. That's not a fun moment, right? So you're like, ah, okay, I get home, and there's just towels and water everywhere. And so you're trying to, okay, what's this going to cost, and how are we going to do this? And, and then a couple days later, one of my kids texted me and said, hey, Dad, we're safe, but the rear tire on the car just totally blew out, and, and we're on the side of the freeway. We don't know what to do. And it's like, okay, we'll get it changed, and then you take it in to get it fixed, and then it's all-wheel drive, so you got to replace all the tires, and then they'll let you know, oh, by the way, you got to do the brakes too, and you need to, and so, but that's what emergency funds are for. What really made it hard, um, this past Sunday after I finished service, I, I went home, and my wife was like, hey, honey, Uncle Phil died. My uncle passed away. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm flying to Arizona Tuesday. I'm going to go with my mom. We're going to help my, my aunt try to figure out what to do, and so she left, and that was hard. And Tuesday night, I got a text from a dear friend who's been a friend for 15 years, and he said, hey, we, we just found out our, our, our little girl needs a bunch more surgeries, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be painful. And then Wednesday was absolutely terrible. Got a text about 12 or so that someone in our church community had passed away. And I raced over to their house, and I go in the living room and what do you do? You, you just hug and you weep and you cry and you're looking at a husband that's now having to figure out what's it going to look like for me to take a step. And you look at the kids and the grandkids. And another dear friend sent me a text Tuesday morning that his longtime friend and mentor passed away. And then Saturday, I got another message that another friend's dad just passed away. And it was interesting having a week like that and all the pain that they're all feeling. I'm just residual. There's this so deep. And I'm sitting here walking through Psalm 126. The losses are just real. This world takes. These last few years have been a lot of losses. 
Oh, there's good things. Let's, we, we, the Lord has done good things. He's done good things. But you know what? It's a loss when you have a baby and no one can come to the hospital to visit because of COVID. That's a loss. It's a loss when you have to cancel your 50-year wedding anniversary. That's a loss. It's a loss when you lose friends. It's a stupid loss when you lose deep friends over politics. It's a loss for us as a nation when we lose civility. It's a loss when we have divisions over mass. It's just a loss. Just a lot of, it's a loss of routine. It's a loss of people. You know, I, I probably would have dismissed this, but it, it's a loss when someone doesn't get a prom. It's a loss when, when, when someone doesn't get their senior year. It's a, it's a loss when, you know, I mean, there's just so many losses. And what this text is an invitation to, you don't have to ignore them. You don't have to be like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, that stinks, but, you know, well, those who sow in tears. God's not embarrassed of your tears. He's not ashamed. He's not saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's saying, just bring them. I'll hold them. Actually, the Bible tells us that. He actually keeps track of our tears. He keeps them in bottles. Every single one. I love how Scott Saul says it again, and beautiful people don't just happen. This world is full of temporary wonder and heartache, but we were made for a world of everlasting fullness and joy. The world is full of pain, but we were made for a world of comfort. The world is full of hurt, but we were made for a world of happiness. The world is full of hate, but we were made for a world of love. That's why we feel that dissonance at times, because we were, this world is beautiful, but it got broken, and we were made for something else. And so we lament the losses. And, but one of the things I love that this psalm does, it invites us to pray, it invites us to lament the losses, but it actually gives us one more thing to, to help us not stay stuck in that feedback loop, in that, in the, in that moment of, of, of weeping and despair, that there's something coming and this text helps us. The structure of it is really helpful. There's this looking back and this looking forward. It says, oh, the Lord, verses one through three, he has done great things. But this is how it ends. The Lord will do greater things. He's done great things. He will do even greater things. To borrow uh, a phrase from Eugene Peterson, he says this. He says, one of the ways that we can have joy and sorrow is we build on the past and we borrow from the future. We build on the past and we borrow from the future. We build on this declaration, oh, the Lord has done great things. And we borrow right now in the presence on the declaration that one day he will do greater things. And you need both if you're not gonna end in bitterness. See, if it's all just past, if your best days are behind you, then all you're left with is maybe some nostalgia, but probably a lot of sadness. I share this story many times, but it's one of the most remarkable moments of my life was when my friend Pete Kopp is about 26, 27 years old. He passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. He was working on his car, and he passed away. And I remember gathering for the memorial service, and I'm in a room just packed with my, my old uh, high school buddies and, and friends. The room is just full, and, and the, the Coppice family comes in, and, and John and Joanne um, his parents were such a big part of my life, and I still remember what it was like to watch Joanne, his mama, come and stand at the front. Oh, she had such a strong faith. And Jesus was so real, and she just raised her hands, and she just sings, great is thy faithfulness. The reason, and it didn't hit me 
tell studying this text in this week. The reason she was able to do that and not just crumble, and it's okay if you crumble in that moment. Oh, please hear that. But the reason she was able to do it is not just because she had a son that was gone. It's that she had a son that was only gone temporarily, and one day there would be a great reunion. The Lord has done great things. The Lord will do greater things. It's guaranteed, the, the, the language here in verses five and six, it, you don't see it in the English, but in the original language, there's this doubling of verbs. We could translate it something like this. It's, it's trying to emphasize the assurance that it's gonna happen. It's saying, he that surely goes out weeping will surely come home with shouts of joy. Restoration is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. The thing you're praying for in verse four, it's guaranteed one day to happen. Maybe now but one day it's guaranteed. Now, ultimately, that guarantee is sealed and insured by something stronger than what the psalmist could see at this time. They could only look from a distance, but we get to look back on this. The reason that we can say the Lord has done great things and the Lord will do greater things is because of the work of Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel that Christ Jesus died on the cross and what we know with his death on the cross. I love the way John Owen says, he says, when, Christ, when, when death stung Christ, it stung itself to death, that Christ emptied all of its venom for all that trust in him, that if Christ has you, death can't have you. Jesus triumphed over it. On the cross where he died in the place of all who trust is he, he took the just judgments of God on himself that he might empty the venom and empty the poison and empty the sting for all who hide themselves in Christ through faith, not through doing, just through belief. And he went to the tomb, but he was restored back to us. Three days later, he was resurrected. This, this triumph of a new creation is coming. New life is coming. Death will not have the final word. I cannot tell you how good that was this week to remember. For the last month or so, I've been listening to um, the Chronicles of Narnia as I've been running, and I, I finished up the, the last chapter of the last book, the last battle, uh, this past Saturday after I'd been working on a memorial service. And in this last scene, the, the, the characters that have been unfolding over these seven books, they, they, they kind of one by one, they get invited through this, this golden gate. And they go in and they see their old friends that had been taken from them in war. They see their friends that have been taken them in old age. There's this mighty reunion that happens, and it was, it was so meaningful, but it wasn't just that the people were restored. Actually, the places were restored, the good places. And there's this refrain that C.S. Lewis, the author of that book, uses, and he says something like this. It says, everything good from the old world will make it into the new world. Everything you've lost that's good, everything that might be taken that's good will be restored when Christ comes. all the losses will be reversed. There is no hurt that heaven will not heal. There's no hurt that heaven will not heal. You're not just going to get it back. You're going to get it back better. Tim Keller in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering says it like this. He says, but resurrection is not just consolation. It is restoration. We get it all back, the love, the 
the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. For all those that hide themselves in Christ, for all those that throw themselves on his forgiveness and his resurrection. Again, he says it like this. He says, Christianity offers not merely a consolation, but a restoration, not just of the life we had, but of the life we always wanted, but never achieved. The Lord has done great things. The Lord will do even greater things. The book of Job, the story of Job, um, ends with the restoration. Of, of all the things that are so confusing to me in the book of Job, the end part never was. God restored it all and gave even more than he lost. And just like the things that Job lost, just like Job is the story of us all, the ending's the story of us all too, for all who trust in Christ. You get it all back. The Lord has done great things. The Lord will do even greater things. If you are a Christian, I know where I heard this line, if you are a Christian, your best days are always future. They're always future. The Lord has done great things. The Lord will do even greater things. Let's pray. Father, the, the, the text itself and the handles that we can pull from this psalm are, are fairly clear and fairly accessible. But to actually apply them and to find comfort from them is a supernatural work of your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do that? Would you minister to us from this text? Make the truth of what it says. Oh God, for those in the room that are in seasons of rejoicing, thanks be to God. We thank you for that. For those that are in seasons of sorrow, oh, might they know it's okay to lament. But might we get to do that as people with hope, knowing that you have done great things and that you will do even greater things. Through Christ our Lord, in his name we pray, amen. We're going to respond as we do every single week as a church by receiving communion together. In our church, the reason we do this every week um, and the reason we take time out of every service is we really feel like this is the most important moment of our gathered time together where we get to together confess our confidence in what Christ Jesus has done. When you're going to this table where there's, there's a, a little bit of bread or cracker representing the body of Christ, and there's juice or wine representing the blood of Christ given for us, you're declaring the truth of this text. You're saying, oh, look what the Lord has done in Christ. Oh, he can forgive it all. He can forgive anyone. Oh, he can, he can absolutely claim and justify, adopt, and bring in. But we're also told that we take communion, we receive communion as a declaration until Jesus returns. This is a way to make people that are forgetful remember there's someone coming back. And so my invitation to you is to go to this table with these two handles, wherever you find yourself, oh, he's done great things. Oh, he's gonna do greater things. He's guaranteed it through the giving of his son. The only barrier to receiving communion here at Redeemer is, is faith in Christ. Turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, turn from your wandering, turn from, from, from walking away from God, building your life on your own understanding and turn back to him, bow your knees and say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me, wash me. And no, he will welcome you with open arms through his grace. Go to this table as you feel led. We're gonna sing a few songs. You're not rushed. Go to this table joyfully knowing that Christ has triumphed.